Welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm Michal Stein. And I'm Lydia Abraha. This week on Pull Quotes, we talk about where we would be without campus media. On January 17th, the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party announced changes to post-secondary fees and OSAP, the Ontario Student Loan Program, where there was once a six-month grace period for student loan repayment without incurring interest. There won't be after next year. The Liberal government had implemented free tuition for students from low-income families. That's gone, too. But there's one aspect that is particularly troubling to student journalists. Going forward, institutions will be required to provide an online opt-out option for all non-essential non-tuition fees. This begs the question, what is an essential non-tuition fee? It seems pretty clear that things like student health care wouldn't be affected by this kind of cut. What's not clear is what will happen for campus newspapers and other media sources. Student fees pay for things like the student union, so clubs and activities, events, and so on, and often student-run newspapers. The question is, will student-run newspapers be deemed essential? What will happen to them if they're not? In the interest of transparency, I have to disclose that I am an editor at The Eye Opener, Ryerson's independent student-run paper, specifically the community's editor. For this episode, I only talk to people who work at newspapers at other schools. That said, I have absolutely no connection to the eye-opener whatsoever, other than the fact that I work with Lydia and a few of the other editors at the ROJ. So I can talk about the fact that last week, the eye-opener published a damning story about the possible misuse of funds on a Ryerson Student Union, or RSU, credit card. They obtained credit card statements with up to $250,000 worth of unreconciled purchases. We'll talk about this more in a moment with Leanne McClarty, the general manager of the Eye Opener. With me today, I have Leanne McClarty, the general manager of the Eye Opener. Uh, Leanne, welcome and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. Leanne, how would you describe your position at the Eye Opener? I'm the general manager, so I'm the publisher. I'm also the keeper of the institution. I've been there for 20 years, so I'm the one that makes sure that we don't break any laws, that make sure we follow the bylaws, make sure that we keep to the constitution that we have, also working within the framework of Ryerson and ensuring that we keep all of their rules. Uh, we are a safe space, so making sure all of that goes along. I also do all the filing for the federal, provincial, and municipal governments. Oh, and if there's any defamation or libel, I'm the first person they go to. Why do you think it matters whether or not universities have an independent student press. Yeah, the yeah the key word for us, of course, is independent because there's the Ryersonian, which is a, a student newspaper too, and it is a fine publication and it scoops us occasionally, and I think that's really good. The problem is, and I can cite several stories over the years, but the most recent ones would come to mind. The Ryersonian is published by the Journalism School. The Journalism School has to get it past the dean. The dean has to get it by the board of governors and the administration. So we've done stories in the past, I'm not going to name any names, but people at the Ryersonian in the last 20 years have leaked us stories that they knew the school wouldn't let them print because it made the school look bad. On our own, we've also found those stories. And a perfect example would be last year when there were bed bugs in the Victoria building and Ryerson said there were no bed bugs and the Sonian wanted that story so bad, but they got told by their dean that the school wasn't going to let them do anything with it. We ended up being on CBC, CTV, Global, 
the Star, the Globe and Mail, even so, the Sun, um, CP24, AM640. Like we broke that and it went, it was a slow media day. It went nuts and it was great for the students. It was great for them getting jobs. There's no way the Sonian could have produced that. We're published by Ryerson students. So we're for the students, by the students. Beyond acting as a watchdog for the school and for the student union, what what do you think the value is for the eye opener for the students who work there? Um, they get an awful lot of practice, and practice makes perfect, as they say. We also. I mean, we operate like a real newspaper. We do ratios to ads, so you have to cut your paper. Like, you learn how, if you run at 30%, which most newspapers do, it's like, I'm sorry, your story's cool, but we have to cut it. So you learn the harsh realities of the newspaper business when you're still a tender young thing. We teach you in design. We uh, help teach you how to uh, do your resume, to present yourself. We help with packages for internships. We bring in our alumni shamelessly. We butter them up to bring them in. We also use them for context to get our guys in for jobs and interviews. You have a real practical working knowledge and help moving on in the world. How might Ford's proposed tuition changes affect the independent student press? Well, it's not just the independent student press for me, and I think it's because I've been in this for so long. And also, I'm third generation socialist. My grandfather was a CCF organizer in Saskatchewan. It's the whole ecosystem. It's student life. It could it could change it all. The buildings could be gone. Do you know we have 97 student clubs? I have a list of them up just to look at. And I mean, there's some of everything in there. There's ones by culture, there's ones by country, there's ones that are culture, country, and academic wish fulfillment going on. There's a Chinese Christian academics like Students Association. There's, there's oh, there's ARG, there's the gamers, there's the role players, there's musicians at Ryerson, like all of the things that aren't classroom. There's us, there's the radio station, I mean, there's the pub, there's the food room. If you're a trans person, you've got two different groups you can go to like talk about feeling the love in a cold and unfeeling world so it would be really hard for us but it would be our whole ecosystem too and it's the ecosystem that that makes life that you know just isn't the dry bread it's it's the cheese and the tomatoes and the aioli and things like that so I've been making plans for how we would do it and we would convert over two or three years from what we are now, which is a masthead of 19 who get paid enough money that it covers their rent and some food and a staff of three into a volunteer run paper with decent equipment, a nice place to stay and probably pizza on Tuesdays. And we could probably outlast the first Ford government, but if they got reelected, we'd we'd go under too. But I've got enough money at the bank that I can dig into the ditches in the trenches, but like a lot of people would lose their jobs at the same time. We'd be half of what we are now. And what do you think that that kind of like diminished? Yeah, the diminished press, the trimming of the margins. How might that uh, affect free speech on campus. Oh, yes, and not not that free speech no, no. that the conservatives are always talking about, which is just, frankly, they want the right to be rude, racist, and bigots, and a little sexism on the side. Actual, like, defensible, courteous rights for everybody, 
absolutely be diminished. Not this summer, but last summer. I had the great fortune of going on a bit of a tour of Canada. I'm originally from Regina. I worked in Vancouver. I've got family in Ottawa. My brother's a professor at Dalhousie. So I went all, all over the place. And everywhere I went, it was only National Post. It was the only paper in town. And oh, talk about the diminishment. The only place that had a good paper was Winnipeg because the free press isn't part of the post chain. So yeah, there'd be a real diminishment. Not just of like watching out, making sure admin and student unions aren't behaving, but literal coverage of the quirky, the funky, the fun, the silly, the, you know, yeah, yeah, the post will cover the bed bugs because they'll get the clicks on that, but they're not going to cover like that, the Afghani women who did that wonderful AIDS quilt a couple of years ago, they're not going to do that. You know, so yes, it would be bad for free speech. It would be bad for campus coverage. And it would be bad for creating the community, which that eye-opener has in its constitution. It's supposed to, like, help the community. Leanne, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you very much for giving me an opportunity. We wanted to speak to editors at other campus newspapers about stories that they broke that had a wider impact, and how losing funding from mandatory fees could hinder their work going forward. Here's Karen Luz Sisson, the editor-in-chief of The Charlatan at Carleton in Ottawa. I'm Karen Luz Sisson, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Charlatan. So one piece of journalism that stood out to me in the past year that we did was um, we covered a engineering prof who had been known to not treat his students very well. Uh, that's what our sources told us, essentially. Uh, like he told, he would tell students um, that he intended to fail them. He would tell them um, that they should drop out and things like that. And uh, the reason why we covered him in particular was because there had been allegations that he'd been testing on course material that he had not actually taught in his midterm. So a lot of students came to us and said, hey, this prof is treating us very fairly. And there have been so many things that came to us that we thought to run a story and we found out that there was actually uh, an, a bit of an investigation and some action taken to curb the way he taught his classes. And when that story came out, it spread like wildfire across the engineering community, which was a community that we previously found it really hard to keep in touch with or to engage. But that story in particular raised a lot of discussion about this problem, about teaching practices in general in the engineering community. And that's one story that I remember made quite the impact. Very recently, actually, there was a major fire on campus that happened just in one of the buildings. And our news, yeah, our news team just happened to be on the scene or in the office at the time. And they, you know how it is with journalists, like you hear of a disaster and you run towards it instead of away. So they ran to where the fire was happening and live tweeted everything and asked all the emergency services what was going on. And they essentially scooped it before any of the big outlets here in Ottawa did. So before CBC Ottawa, CTV, uh, before the Ottawa Citizen. And those organizations actually followed our news team while they were live tweeting the events and what was transpiring, which was really cool to see. And after that, again, like a lot of students on campus, a lot of profs even, and other 
community members of Ottawa have like thanked the news team for keeping everyone updated on that. Honestly, the idea of giving the option to operate a student journalism is something that really worries me because I believe, I really, really believe that student journalism is both a valuable educational tool and a service to the community. I mean, when it comes to student elections, when it comes to what is very local to a university committee or a community, there's really no there's really no better outlet to cover those things than the people who are here and living it out. And those are students. Those are student journalists, essentially. And to cut out that service to the public is to do a huge disservice to the public and to students who are learning the craft of journalism as well. I mean, when this discussion like first came about on Twitter and like even with my own colleagues, I saw a lot of how, um, current journalists right now got their footing in student journalism, in student newspapers, and we're already kind of stretched financially. So to cut off, to cut off what is typically a major source of income for student newspapers and campus media is to cut off such a huge service as an educational tool and as a public service for the wider community. We also spoke to Tamora Durrani, the charlatan journalist who was at the scene when the fires broke out earlier this week. So my name's Tamora Durrani, and I'm the news editor at The Charlatan, which is Carleton University's independent student newspaper. In terms of the fire yesterday, uh, on Saturday, uh, what ended up happening was uh, I actually had, for some reason, I overworked myself into a sort of a pneumonia after I had flu last week. And then I ended up not going to school for a couple of days. And then on Saturday, when I ended up going to school to maybe work on just a few things that I needed to get done that I'd missed at school, um, I went to the library and then I went to my office uh, in the newsroom at the Charlton. And, uh, and I knew then... At some point, I don't know what it was, but it was a little bit of an instinct that I had. Something was going to happen today, and I know that sounds weird, but it did happen that way. I was in the newsroom, and my co-news editor, Maral Jamal, um, she came in for a bit as well. Uh, And all of a sudden, someone texted me, uh, a friend of mine, and told me that there might be a fire um, in Stacey Building which is uh, where chemistry labs and classes are held at Carleton. Um, And I immediately thought, okay, we do have fire alarms that go off all the time in university, you know, uh, things like this happen. But I didn't know the the extent of how much it could be. So I ran downstairs, and then um, our our, uh, office in our newsroom is on the fifth floor of the university center. So it's a little bit above, uh, like, everywhere else. So I quickly ran downstairs, about five flights of stairs, and then saw downstairs that there were multiple ambulances and multiple um, fire trucks and police cars. And I, this is not normal now because, I mean, I've covered fires before, and I've seen how it could be, but this is, this, these were a lot of them, and they were blaring, and they had completely stopped um, Campus Drive, and uh, it, was, it was getting a lot. And so I ran up. 
And I immediately, as I ran up to um, the Health Science Building, which is a newly built building right next to Stacy Building, I realized it wasn't just Stacy that they had barricaded. It was multiple other buildings around it. So it was obviously something bigger. And I quickly talked to a source on the scene. Um, it was a fire uh, a worker. And one of the fire workers told me that they, this is a fire that started from Stacy Building, and I quickly tweeted it. Um, I knew this was breaking news. So, and breaking news, it's, it's, it's more important that people know what's going on as opposed to, you know, waiting it out. And as information comes, you need to quickly alert people because there were still people on campus at the time and people live on campus here at Carleton. So, um, and I, tar I quickly, as information was coming and as information I was getting from uh, uh, the radio chatter, which by the way, I went on the public. Once people weren't talking to me, once the cops realized around there that I was asking questions and I was snapping pictures, people started uh, telling me to kind of move away and that I shouldn't be here and that I shouldn't be asking questions. And so I moved away and it's Ottawa. So it was really, really cold, but <laughs> that day was really cold. And I was standing outside um, quickly getting as much information I, as I could from the people around and letting people know what's going on and what I'm learning and how it smells um, and, you know, attributing my information so people know where it's coming from. And then, uh, the big thing that happened at that point was I realized that I'm not going to get all my information here on the scene after a little while. And so I went to um, the public radio on my phone app, uh, and I went on the public radio where I could find the radio chatter for the fire services here in Ottawa. And um, I started listening in on that conversation and tweeting it as we got information from there. So people knew then um, – what was going on with a live um, reaction from, you know, what they, the people on the scene who are fighting this fire is happening. And I know that eventually CBC did show up, as it always does. <laughs> um, and I know that the citizens showed up at some point as well. Post media is um, pretty fast as well in these things. And CTV eventually did too, I believe. But it took them their time. And uh, it was frustrating, I will say, because... Uh, mainstream media loves jumping ship on things that work that they think is worth covering on campuses for them. And so when this was happening, I mean, I was the first on scene. Morale was with me, my co-news editor. We were the first on scene. And it didn't always attribute us as the people who they learned this from, who were there reporting this. And sometimes they would even take statements from our pieces, which once I filed my story quickly, um, which was a developing story, and I kept having updates there within every half hour with whatever I learned. Um, and they wouldn't always attribute us. And that really frustrated me because, I mean, they don't always cover everything on campus. And we do. And it's, it's our job, you know? Next, we spoke to Anshal Sharma, the editor-in-chief of The Fulcrum, the paper at the University of Ottawa. My name is Anshal Sharma, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Fulcrum, which is University of Ottawa's student newspaper. It began in August, so we actually um, broke the news along with uh, the French newspaper on campus, La Retente, and we received, you know, this huge police report um, detailing allegations of fraud against the, at the time, president of the Student Federation of the University of Ottawa and a, a couple of other executives as well. So 
Um, once that came out, uh, you know, students were really uh, kind of sh shaken up by the fact that this was happening under their noses. Uh, it really opened the door to a lot of questions in regards to accountability and transparency within the student union. And it also, um, something that, that kind of happened was the university administration uh, stepped in and they lost faith as well in the student union. And uh, it was it was after this that, you know, there were a lot of uh, meetings taking place about accountability measures, about fixing the union, um, just about regaining that trust. Um, but at the end of the day, we actually obtained uh, a document from the university addressed to the student union um, claiming that if they didn't follow uh, certain procedures in terms of uh, picking an auditing firm uh, in order to investigate these allegations, things like that, uh, the university would actually terminate their contract with the student union. And that actually happened. So uh, as of December um, the 2018, they they completely uh, finished their contract. And right now there's an interim contract between the university and the Student Federation of the University of Ottawa, just in order to keep businesses afloat until um, a referendum that's gonna take place uh, in February, actually, um, on the 11th. And it's gonna be an online vote where students will get to pick um, whether they want to stay with the Student Federation of the University of Ottawa or if they want to go with a different student union. The, the, the fraud story with the Student Federation, um, that, that story alleged that the, the executives um, you know, mismanaged funds and they spent upwards of $20,000 on uh, you know, personal items. And uh, that story was actually picked up nationally by like the CBC. It was, um, it was picked up by other campuses across the country as well. Um, and it actually opened the door to other student unions, other schools questioning their own, um, their own student unions uh, in terms of accountability and transparency. Uh, I know like Carleton University, they recently had their um, student union debates for their upcoming election. And one of the questions was, what are you going to do to ensure uh, that there's accountability? So that's something like what happened with the Student Federation of the University of Ottawa doesn't happen to us. And, you know, the whole thing with uh, Ryerson Student Union and the way the eye-opener broke that story as well. Um, yeah, it really calls into question why campus media is uh, is being deemed a threat because, you know, we're breaking these stories and this is stuff that no one else would cover, you know, like the national news wouldn't have this information if it weren't for the work that we're doing in these newsrooms on university or college campuses. You know, the, the Ford announcement comes at a really bad time for for our paper, especially, and I'm sure other papers across the province. But, um, you know, given the the conflict with our student union and their falling out with our university administration, we actually haven't received any of our levies that are distributed by the student union for this year at all. So we're already in a really uh, precarious position uh, financially, and we won't be able to run if uh, if they they go on with this um this opt-out option and deem campus papers as inessential. And we spoke to Jack Denton, the editor-in-chief of the Varsity at University of Toronto. Can you tell us about a story that had a major impact that the Varsity broke or that you broke or anyone at the Varsity broke uh, that might have been missed otherwise? 
Absolutely. I mean, I think um, campus newspapers play a crucial role in you know, ele- elevating stories on campuses to national attention. And there's certainly a, a few um, that immediately come to mind. For better or worse, uh, the Varsity newspaper was the very first outlet to cover uh, Jordan Peterson and his mm-hmm. stances on a campus free speech and gender identity. Um, much more recently, um, we sort of uncovered and uh, shed light on the fact that Muslim Students Association executives um, at U of T had been receiving um, surprise visits from CSIS and members of the RCMP for years, um, which was later picked up by Vice and sort of exposed um, that this had been going on on campuses uh, across the country. you know, again, last year we reported um, on quite a controversial uh, policy at the university. It was, uh, gave the university the power to put uh, mentally ill students on a mandatory leave of absence. Again, you know, this was sort of like a deep policy issue that we uncovered, brought to light, um, and that received a lot of attention. Um, we were also able to just, you know, do deeper dives on stories um, that otherwise might sort of be glossed over by mainstream media. Um, I think specifically about a story that I wrote um, about U of T's implication in the Paradise Papers leak. So, um, you know, this was this huge um, project, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, uh, you know, did looking into how institutions and sort of, you know, uh, public figures were investing their money. And, you know, we were able to take a deep deep dive on, you know, where is U of T's pension and endowments? You know, why is it, what's it doing in the Cayman Islands? What's it, what's it doing in Malta? So, you know, both elevating stories to, um, you know, greater attention and then doing a deeper dive on stories. So you talk about some pretty big stories there, like Jordan Peterson is, has just like skyrocketed to international attention and everyone's got an opinion on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine, I will not disclose on this podcast. Um, <laughs> Uh, so all these stories with the potential for quite a great amount of impact, uh, what impact did some of these stories have? Absolutely. Um, well, you know, I think obviously the impact of being the first outlet to give Jordan Peterson a platform has set off a whole chain of events that's probably the subject of another podcast. Um you know, I, I think most recently the story that our news editor Josie Gao wrote about the Muslim Students Associations receiving those surprise visits from law enforcement, like I really think that sparked a bigger conversation and an important one about, you know, what the duty of care is for the university. The university, um, as far as we know, knew or at least was made aware of these visits and, um, you know, r- r- sort of raising, uh, you know, attention about what the role of the university may be in that case. Um, similarly, um, you know, when we shone light on this deeper policy issue that had to do with this uh, mandatory leave of absence policy, um, because we brought that to light, it mobilized students in a way that, um, you know, you rarely see on university campuses. Um, and, you know, we had nothing to do with, you know, the mobilization or organizing students, but certainly I, I think it was due to our coverage that um, this policy that may have otherwise just slid through a governance process um, suddenly became a huge point of contention that the Ontario Human Rights Commission got involved with. Um, and that policy ended up going back, undergoing a number of revisions. Um, you know, some people are still not happy with it, but certainly I think that uh, its form now um, was changed because of the student involvement that was sparked uh, by our reporting. You published a letter from the editor on Sunday, recusing yourself from writing about the progressive conservatives' proposed cuts to student fees. Can you talk a little bit more about why you made that decision? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, shortly after the Student Choice Initiative, as uh, to use their words, um, was announced, um, you know, I um, 
you know, found myself uh, having to be an advocate for the varsity. Um, you know, along with a number of other um, editors and reporters, we were very suddenly sort of making media appearances. Um, CP24 did like a couple live hits from our office. Um, I spoke to HuffPost and TVO um, and immediately sort of the journalistic ethics sort of like spidey sense kicked in. It's like, well, you know, does this have the chance to, you know, impact the objectivity of our reporting? And, um, you know, after some discussions with uh, varsity alumni, uh, our public editor, um, and, you know, some of the other editors at our newspaper, we decided that um, it was important to uh, separate sort of our advocacy for the varsity um, from our editing. So really, um, as the editor-in-chief of the varsity, I'm also the CEO of Varsity Publications, which is the, the publisher. Um, so I think there's a strong case that it's my fiduciary duty um, to advocate for the varsity and its continued existence. And I think that manifests in fighting um, this policy that the, the PC government has, has proposed. So because, you know, my bias on this matter is so um, blatant and forceful, it's important um, that I not be involved in our, in our coverage of that. So I'm, I will not be informing our, our news team. Um, I will not be editing any of the work related to that issue. Um, I'm delegating that to our managing editor, those publishing responsibilities. And then we have quarantined a number of our uh, news reporters. So they will be the only beat reporters writing on it. And then all those people involved in that reporting process um, will not you know, be issuing any sort of normative statements uh, on the policy. And you know, I think it was uh, a good opportunity to be transparent with our readership and also you know, more broadly ensure that our core mandate, which is strong, objective, responsible news reporting, um, is able to to continue despite uh, despite the advocacy role that I have had to take and others. Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to be here. And now for our favorite segment, our first poll quote of 2019. Michal, what's your poll quote? So we're recording this on January 30th, which is Bell Let's Talk Day, the day that Bell donates five cents to mental health organizations for every social media post that includes the hashtag Bell Let's Talk. I've always been a little of two minds on this. On the one hand, it's always great to have initiatives that donate to mental health. But on the other hand, it's also a very convenient marketing campaign for Bell. The tweets started rolling out this morning, and I saw a very interesting tweet from Jan Wang, who is a journalist, an author, and a journalism professor. Here's my pull quote, which is her tweet. I was clinically depressed from backlash on school shooting story. At Bell Let's Talk, owned at Globe and Mail. They said I was lying, ordered me to work, fired me, forced me to sign non-disclosure. I wrote memoir out of the blue. They clawed back my severance. Yes, Bell, let's talk. So to clarify, Bell and Globe Media merged in 2001, and Bell divested from Globe Media in 2010. Wang's tweet is referring to an article she wrote for The Globe in 2006, Get Under the Desk, which was about the shooting at Dawson College in Montreal. It's really a harrowing story, and you can still find it online. Anyway, that story got a huge amount of backlash, and Wang became clinically depressed, as she said in her tweet. Uh, and this story to me highlights some of the hypocrisy of Bell Let's Talk Day. For a company advocating for mental health, how well do they address that with their employees? How do they deal with it when writers who work for Bell Imprints or former Bell Imprints uh, write about mental illness or developmental illness because of what they're writing about or because of their work conditions? And what do they do to make things right when they mess up? So that's my pull quote for this week. Thanks, Mikhail. 
Okay, Lydia, what's your pull quote? My pull quote today is from a recent article in the Globe and Mail called In the Dark, The Cost of Canada's Data Deficit. This story has exposed huge holes in Canada's data collection system. Coincidentally, I'm working on a similar piece about this topic for my audio feature for the ROJ. It's about the lack of race-based data in Canada and how it impacts our reporting on racialized folks. Here's the closing quote from the article written by Eric Andrew G. and Tavia Grant. Every day, Canadian governments have the chance to prevent nasty things from happening by putting stark numbers in front of Canadians so that the public can demand change where it's needed and build on what the country is doing right. And every day, governments pass up the opportunity to do so on maternal health, on Indigenous education, on environmental action, on the safety of drugs and the integrity of the doctors who prescribe them on matters as seemingly mundane as how far Canadians drive and as patently urgent as the rate at which whole demographic groups are dying. Governments deprive Canadians of the data needed to make good decisions. Every day they leave Canadians in the dark. Thanks, Lydia. And that's our show. Poll Quotes is produced by Michelle Stein and by me, Lydia Aberhoff. Thanks to Leanne McClarty, Karen Liu Sisson, Anshel Sharma, Tamor Durrani, and Jack Denton for joining us today. Thanks to Angela Glover and Lindsay Hanna for technical help. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. If you learned something today, please help us spread the word by sharing our show on social media and leaving us a rating on iTunes. Do you have a friend who's into Canadian journalism? Tell them about pull quotes. They'll thank you. We promise. You can find me on Twitter at Liddy Abraha. And me at Michal Stein too. You can also visit rrj.ca for new stories every week. We'll see you next week on Pull Quotes. 